It's your boy, and welcome to episode 57 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, go ahead and send them your favorite episode. Man, it's hot as shit. It is 93, maybe even hotter degrees here in the Bay Area. And uh, we were getting some cooler weather, which I was enjoying a lot, especially as I've, you know, I usually spend my weekends going for long walks, but... I swear, the uh, the cold weather was just a bit of a tease. Now we're back up in the in the 90s and um, just sweltering. And uh, it's incredibly uncomfortable. I have no AC in my place. I have no anything. I have no heat. I have no AC. And, uh, you know, about the only thing you can... Actually, when I first moved out to the Bay Area, I had this embarrassing situation. I remember calling the utilities company because I had moved out here from Arizona, which gets up to like 110. And uh, some people have evaporative cooling, as I'm saying this, I'm saying, what the, you know, what the fuck? We're talking about evaporative cooling on the podcast. But um, some people in Arizona do have evaporative cooling, which fucking sucks ass. Um, you might as well hang, like, wet towels in your apartment. You know, it just gets super humid. But um, but uh, that's what some people have. And it's a fucking nightmare. But uh, for the most part, if you live in Arizona, you have to have air conditioning. So when I moved out to the Bay Area, I just assumed it was part and parcel of well, really, if you lived anywhere. And I remember calling the utilities company when I moved into my first apartment, and I said, hey, can you guys turn on the AC? And they're like, open a window. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, Kind of embarrassing for, uh, I wasn't even that young. I was like 22 or something like that. Um, And believe me, I'm not immune to making mistakes now. But as I'm doing this, I'm just like, you know, when I have to do the podcast, I guess what I'm saying is normally I open a window or something, or sometimes I even leave my front door open um, to just kind of cool down. But as I do the podcast, obviously it has to be quiet. So I have to leave the windows closed. I have to leave the door closed. And um, I've only been doing this for a couple seconds and I already, I already feel myself sweating. So <sighs> I don't know all that just to say uh, pretty uncomfortable. Um, and yeah, honestly, it's been a really stressful week. Uh, very busy at work. It's a busy, very busy time for work. Um, it also happens to be uh, midterm time for school. Had a biology exam on uh, Monday. A um, lot of a lot of reading for anthropology, which has actually been probably my my favorite uh, subject this semester. And uh, last podcast, we ended up talking about Adam Carolla the whole the whole time. And I remember saying I had all these ideas about art and um, <laughs> ritual and uh, um, religion and and just this litany of things I was hoping to get to that we didn't get to. So um, if we happen to get, in, get into it today, a lot of it is really just coming from stuff I've been thinking about uh, with anthropology. But uh, got some tests next week, a lot of math. So yeah, just... Uh, stressful week. I think uh, I think a consequence of that though is that I've um, I've been watching a lot of movies, um, and it's I don't know. I feel like when school starts, there's two things that I don't do a lot of, which is uh, I don't read for pleasure, um, and for some reason I have this itch now to just kind of read it, read some novels. My brother um, uh, had, had has just read Slaughterhouse Five for the first time, and I I remember reading it when I was like seventeen, um, and uh, yeah, he loved it. He was just very adamant that I, I reread it. So I, I just literally got a copy from eBay, uh, in the mail today. So I'm looking forward to reading that. And actually, 
you know, you, you enter into times in your life where you really feel like there's certain things you're supposed to be doing as an artist or, um, I don't know. You feel like you're in a sort of gestational or almost like germinal stage of creativity where you're sort of gathering materials. And I don't know why, but I kind of feel that way. I think part of it is the, the, you know, whatever I'm reading in anthropology is sort of stimulating this for me. But it's like my brother recommends Slaughterhouse-Five. And then I just found out, one of the highlights of my week last week is, um, you know, there's two things that really kind of pushed kind of sealed the deal for me on, on starting to do a podcast. One of them was the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, um, which the last time I was on tour, I spent m- most of that time while I was on the road, um, you know, sometimes eight hours, 12 hours at a time, listening to um, uh, episodes of the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. And it's sort of a, he, he's sort of a funny, like, personage for me, because I've read American Psycho. That's the only novel of his I've, I've read, and I didn't like it. But hearing his podcast and his thoughts on culture and film, I just, I loved. And he would always start, now, I mean, the interviews themselves that he had and the guests he had were always very interesting and the conversations um, were always interesting. But one thing that really impressed me is he, was always, he would always start his podcast, you know, with, with, you know, some sort of summary of, you know, a lot of the ideas that came up from the episode and, and, um, um, I'm trying to think of the word, like a column. But, you know, he would go on for sometimes 30 to 45 minutes with this very polished, uh, well-articulated musing about some aspect of the culture or art, especially, you know, the end of film, as a lot of people have sort of experienced it. Now that episodic content is really like, you know, he made the point, which I've repeated as if it was my own many times. But, you know, if you pulled most people into film school right now, I bet very few of them actually want to make feature films. I bet most people, um, their creative vision is something episodic. It's a television show um, or a series or something like that. Um, uh, but that's something that has surprised a lot of people who've been around for different epochs like Brady Stanellis. I mean, um, you know, film was... Film reigned when he was, during his formative years, it, it was, it reigned for most of my life. And it is strange to sort of look now and see that movies are some of the least interesting things being made. Um, uh, you know, I, one of the, I haven't done it in weeks and weeks and weeks, but one thing I've done in the past is I'll take the podcast episode and I'll sort of segment little clips out of it by topic and sort of post those online to the YouTube channel, which people ignore anyway, because I, I, one, maybe it just sucks, but I also don't promote it. But uh, someone, I had one about The Dark Knight, which is actually fitting that it comes up, because I watched a lot of Christopher Nolan movies this week. But um, but somebody was saying, oh, yeah, those movies are overrated, but it's, you know, it's, 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 like, it's weird as fuck that you would like dismiss um, uh, comic book movies as a whole, which I don't agree with, but uh, I think most of them are stupid. And, and really, that's, those are the only films that get made, right? That's a pretty a pretty obvious thing that we're all observing. But, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, Brett Easton Ellis, I was, uh, you know, I think the last time he posted the podcast proper, as I had subscribed to it, was probably in like 2016 or 17. Um, so even when I was listening to him recently, you know, even as I was listening back, um, which inspired me to start this podcast just over a year ago, um, I was listening to episodes that had been posted, um, you know, a year or two before that. 
Um, and so I, I didn't, I thought the, the podcast was over. I, I think the last episode he posted was even mentioning that he was kind of getting burnt out about it. He was uh, running out of things to talk about. And so I just assumed that the podcast stopped. What I just learned this week is that he's actually been continuing the podcast on Patreon. So um, I don't know if it's a failure on his part for not making that clear enough or if it's just a failure on my part for not being proactive enough. But um, I found him on Patreon um, and I was so stoked and it was kind of fortuitous. He had uh, one free episode uh, that people could listen to. And it was such a it really, I mean, it sounds crazy, but it really just made my week. I, I, it was like all of a sudden I was reminded about why I find his mind so interesting and, and, and why I love his podcast so much. And uh, it was a free episode with Chuck Palahniuk. And so much came up in this episode. It was just like, you know, I'm talking about this idea of sometimes you feel like you're in a germinal creative state, right, where you're sort of gathering materials for this kind of new era of creativity. And for some reason, I feel the gears starting to turn again, right? I'm feeling, I mean, we talked about a lot about, we've always talked about confidence, but it, it certainly came up in the last episode too. And I feel my mind turning back to this project that I've sort of been marinating on for a while. And, um, and uh, I don't know, I don't want to say too much about it, I guess, because I, I, I'm kind of embarrassed that I'll, <laughs> I'll shy away from it again. But the point is, is that in a lot of ways I feel my feelers are going out again. I'm looking for material. I'm sort of trusting this impulse that I have. And it was so it was so great not only to find the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, to hear this very interesting conversation with Chuck Polinick, but so much of what came up in it felt very timely given where I'm at now and the things that I'm interested in. Uh, and one of the things that came up was Slaughterhouse-Five. And uh, Chuck Polinick was just talking about uh, what a great novel it is and how he thinks it's one of the best novels ever written. So it was just, it felt very fortuitous that my brother had just read it and recommended it to me. I had a copy in route from eBay, and here I am listening uh, to Chuck Polinuk talk about how it's such a great book. Um, the reason that podcast was so interesting for me was a couple things. Um, I kind of, it kind of, you know, whatever, wherever I'm at right now, I feel like I'm and maybe I'm trying to force the issue, but I feel like I'm almost getting back to this place where, is, where I first stumbled on the I Ching. And as you're pursuing this kind of weird interest or this new area of thinking, life can begin to feel kind of magical. You see things linking up in ways that feel almost uh, like fate. Um, uh, and there's something to that. I mean, the, the Slaughterhouse-Five thing is one example. Another one is I've, I've talked about a lot of the stuff I've been reading in anthropology has really... Um, I don't know. It's brought up a lot for me. And one thing is the, uh, we've been doing a lot of uh, readings from Victor Turner, which it was insane to me to hear Chuck Polina go on and on about Victor Turner and how influential Turner was on uh, on Chuck Polina. I'm not going to bore you with a talk about it. You're welcome to Google it and you can see who Victor Turner was. Um, but uh, this has kind of been the scope of my thinking, right? Uh, and we... Um, you know, we had this reading last week in anthropology from uh, Grimes about um, rites, uh, initiation rites, rites of passage. And um, uh, a lot of that stuff came up in Polonic also. And so there's a couple things. One, it, it just, it's, it's weird to feel these kind of like, I don't know, these seemingly separate, unrelated areas are kind of overlapping in what feel like almost uh, too coincidental. 
right? Like Jung talks about this idea of synchronicity, uh, right? Uh, if I was religious, I would see the hand of God in my life, right? I would feel like that was, I was listening to the Spirit um, or following the Spirit or whatever it is. But you do feel like you're following this call, and it's just you have these little nudges or sort of gusts of wind pushing at your back, sort of whispering to you that you're walking in the right direction, right? And just, hey, just keep following this voice. Just keep seeing where this leads. See where it takes you. But you do have this feeling like you're having these little affirmations that are confirming that you're walking in the right direction. Two th- uh, I guess one thing that's interesting about this podcast, though, is, you know, I mentioned that I, I read American Psycho um, by Brett Easton Ellis. I almost called him Robert Easton Ellis, but Brett Easton Ellis and I did not like that book. You know, that was a very... American Psycho was a very formative film for me, right? I forget what movie we were talking about in the last episode, but, um, you know, when I was really getting into movies, American Psycho was, like, one of the big movies at the time that was, like, very cool. It was considered a serious film. Um, not an art house film, but, like, you know, it was more than a movie. It was a film, right? And um, it kind of had all the makings of like a cool movie at the time, you know, it was a deep character study. It was, t- it was, um, it was a bit of a period piece, right? It's set in New York in the sort of late eighties, early nineties, I think, but, um, it felt topical and it kind of had a weird sort of twist, right? Um, but that was like a very formative film for me. And yet the book I did not like, And so it was one of the exceptional times where I felt like the movie improved on the book. I mean, most times people, you know, they get a lot of uh, currency out of when you mention a movie that's been turned into a book, they get to say, oh, well, the movie's fine, but the book's better. Um, uh, Maybe I should go back and read the book, but I felt at the time and I and and until I reread the book, I still feel the same way that the movie is, is is better than the book. I didn't like the book very much. So there's that weird disconnect of, I don't like Brett Easton Ellis's literary work, which is what he's known for, for the most part, but I love his podcast. And another incredibly formative movie for me was Fight Club. And, you know, it's easy to gush about it, but I really think Fight Club is one of those movies that um, it, it just gets better and better the more you watch it, and there's so many layers to it, and it's so deep. Um and it's especially now, I think that there's something about that movie that when it came out, I mean, it was good, but it's almost, it almost feels more relevant now than when it came out for some strange reason. But it's, uh, you know, David Fincher's a serious filmmaker, and I just feel like if you were an author and you could basically wish for how an adaptation of your novel would turn out, Fight Club would be the result. And I guess what the two have in common is that I read... Fight Club, the novel around that time also, and I did not like it. And uh, I actually have a copy of that uh, on the way also, because I want to reread it. Maybe I should reread American Psycho also. But it was so interesting to hear this conversation with Chuck Palahniuk and also be like, you know, the one experience I have of this person's literary work, I didn't like it. You know, I'm listening to two people whose novels I read and didn't enjoy have both had movies made of their novels that were, uh, I felt, much better than the book they're based on. Um, and yet they're having one of the most interesting conversations um, that I've heard in a long time. And so much of what they're talking about feels incredibly relevant uh, to me and sort of resonates with me on, a, 
I don't know, on a, on a, on just on a really deep level. Um, I mean, when you're younger and you're sort of creating art, I think you go through this phase where you're very pure and you're kind of in your most honest voice in a weird way when you're first starting. I think that's why we really enjoy um, a lot of artists' early works or their first work, even, you know, a band's first record or someone's first film. And I don't want to say inevitably, but there is this kind of, for many people, there's this in the wilderness period where they're sort of reconciling either their success or creating. Uh, it's almost like once you jump out of the box in whatever way, and that could be in a very big way on like a very public stage, like as a, as a filmmaker or an author with like a literary success. Um, it could even just, I mean, for me, it's even in a smaller way. Like once you put out a record that you made in isolation, but now you're playing shows and you have a conception of an audience as a creator that changes things. I mean, right now we have a fair amount of listeners for the podcast, but I still feel very free. I still talk as if no one's listening. If this audience ever grew, I would anticipate that there would be a period where things got kind of weird for a while. But hopefully what follows after that is I think you, uh, I mean, frankly, after making many, many mistakes, <laughs> hopefully there's this sort of return to form period where you kind of reevaluate, you reconnect with you know, the sources that first inspired you. Um, and in some ways, you even if you're ignored, even if the sort of public interest has sort of passed, in some ways, I think many people, um, Jesus, I'm like literally glistening, like wiping sweat away from my forehead and under my eyes and shit. But um, even if the public interest has passed, I think many people feel in their latter years, they're making kind of some of the most interesting or, or uh, in some ways, maybe the most honest work uh, that they make. So anyway... All I'm trying to say is it's sort of funny for me now, you know, that I'm the least active musically, um, that I'm doing a podcast, that I've shifted my focus uh, to going to school and maybe doing something else as a career, that in some ways I feel I have a stronger stock or inventory of what I find genuinely inspiring. And in some ways a better understanding of all the things that influenced me for most of my life. Um... You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. But um, but yeah, it's just very strange to... I mean, this is when things start to get kind of weird, but... Um, I think... When you look at a movie like Fight Club... I guess I'm trying to connect a couple thoughts here. Uh, we've mentioned the game developer Jonathan Blow on the podcast a lot. Jonathan Blow has criticized video games for saying that uh, one thing video games do not do very well is something that many people try to get video games to do, which is to be like movies, which is to tell a story. And Jonathan Blow believes that video games actually don't do a very good job of telling stories. Movies do a very good job of telling stories. Books do a very good job of telling certain types of stories um, that aren't possible with film. Right, So games are actually very good at being educational, to actually teach people things. Um, movies are very good at telling certain stories. Books are very good at telling very different types of stories, internal stories, uh, more nuanced, more specificity, things that a camera can't capture. Right, And so I think there's something about when you see the film of Fight Club, when you see the film of American Psycho, there is something that those filmmakers saw in the books that maybe are actually not 
very well suited to the book form. But there's something about the ideas inside the books that the filmmaker picked up on and thought, you know what? This is not a great book, but I see or I think I understand the... I almost want to say, I'm trying not to say like the spiritual idea, the psycho-spiritual slash creative slash artistic idea that the person is going for. And, uh, but I think they kind of missed, they kind of missed the mark on this one. But I, I bet if I, if I sort of lifted this idea, this core artistic slash spiritual slash, um, uh, creative idea out of this format and place it into another and applied my, very unique skill and craft and talent to it, I think I can get closer to the truth, right? And my mind, as I'm saying this, is going back to this idea. I was complaining about the new Charlie Kaufman film, I've Been Thinking of Ending Things. I think that's what it's called. On Netflix, which I really didn't like, you know? And the first 20 minutes of it, I was watching it thinking... um, uh, wow, this is so interesting. It was setting up, there was so much tension. It was shot so, there was so much interest for me in the way it was shot. And when the narrator, the the female lead of the film, she kind of breaks the fourth wall at one point in the first, in the, in the beginning of the movie and looks into the camera. You just, there was so much going on that was so interesting to me. And I, and I still, even after the movie was over and I was fucking fed up with it and I thought it's kind of deteriorated into a bunch of artsy-fartsy nonsense, I still think there's something in the ideas of that movie that are really, really fascinating. I think I saw what they were going for. And actually, I hadn't really considered this until I'm saying it, but there might be a a connection here also because the movie itself is based on a book. And so maybe one thing I can add to my reading list is the book that that movie is based on. But maybe as a book, it it works incredibly well. And maybe just as a film, it doesn't work. Like I was saying, you know, certain... Uh, whether it's a book or a film, they do different things very well and they don't do other things very well. So maybe there's something about the internal worlds of the characters that were depicted in the movie that are actually very well um, portrayed in the book that just doesn't translate to film. Right, but the idea that I'm getting at is that when you're a creative person, I think when you have a moment of real inspiration... There's this very real feeling, and I'm not saying it's true, and I'm not even saying it's real, but I'm saying the feeling, it certainly feels in many ways like you are getting, for something that's genuinely inspired, not just a good idea, not just something that will work, that will make money, that will be successful, but when you have something that really resonates with you emotionally, that sort of bubbles up seemingly out of nowhere, that that just sort of issues forth from your creative wellspring uh, that moves you, you do get the sense that you've tapped into something in the ether or something from another dimension, right? And on some level, you know the task is futile, but the the entire creative process um, is you doing the best you can to recreate that vision, literally that vision, this vision that you have in your mind, this sort of window or glimpse you've been given into this other dimension, to use the talents and the tools that you have to the the best of your ability to recreate that as accurately as possible in this dimension, right? Um, And I think I'm just trying to get at this idea that I think, 
again, I don't know how you validate this. I don't know how you demonstrate the, your, uh, your calibration for this, but I, I feel it in myself and I think other people feel it also that, um, we sort of define ourselves by how calibrated we are to know when we're in the presence of this certain spiritual, uh, slash creative slash artistic presence, right? I like, I, for some reason I'm thinking about religious leaders, right? Like I know everybody lives in their life and they have their talent and they have their craft and we know when someone's real and we think we know when someone's fake, right? Like comedians know when a comedian's full of shit. Oh, that person's hack or that person's bullshit. But they know when someone is the real fucking deal or they feel like they know when someone's the real fucking deal. Uh, I think musicians have this. I think filmmakers have this. But for some reason I'm thinking about, um, it all comes back to religion for me, but I'm thinking about like priests or something like someone knows or thinks they know when they're in a church where the spirit is present, right? We have another episode. I think it's even called hit by the spirit or hit with the spirit or something like that. You, when you're in the presence of art, you know it because you're hit by the spirit. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, 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 you know, I tend to think I'm a type of person who knows when I'm in the presence of art, but there's something about that film I'm thinking, I've been thinking of many things or I'm thinking of many things that bothers me because I feel the presence of a spirit, right? I feel the spirit in the ideas of the film, but when it's not well executed, when it's, when it's not clear, the reason that movie bothers me is because I feel like that filmmaker is in dereliction of their duty. You know, I'm looking at it going, you have lost me. The train has pulled out of the station and you've done nothing to make sure that the people who you are asking to give you their attention are following you where you're going. You know? And to me, there's a... Like, uh, Jonathan Blow talks about the novel Gravity's Rainbow, which I actually think is kind of fraudulent, but it was interesting to hear Jonathan Blow's thoughts on it because he described it as... Um, I don't know if he used the train analogy, but as maybe a plane or something that takes off and isn't really concerned whether or not you follow it. Right? And so there's something to that. Like, sometimes things are just going to go over people's heads. um, And that's fine. You know? I think it's perfectly reasonable for somebody to sit down and watch Fight Club um, and kind of go, eh, not really my thing. But I bet the more they watch it, the more they'll see in it. And so, I don't know. Maybe I just need to reread Gravity's Rainbow. Maybe I need to uh, watch this movie a couple more times. But it also, there are times where you feel like you're being fucked with. Right, that somebody is trading on uh, on being confusing or not being clear to sort of again, it's like a fake spiritualist, right? Um, you know, a sort of uh, a fake psychic, right? Somebody who's kind of using smoke and mirrors to sort of have the appearances of a spiritual medium, but they're not doing the actual work of a spiritual medium, which is sort of I don't know, providing for the for the religious body and and here I mean the viewers right or anyone who's ingesting your art and so I'm not saying that it's has to be this way but for me personally I think you know the role of an artist is something like a spiritual medium um you know uh <laughs> you know artists are kind of the I don't know, the sages or the, the, I don't know what you call it, the witch doctors or something, but I think at its best, what art does is, one, it's just sort of, uh, you know, we're tapping into this weird, creative, generative force 
you know, in the great mystery of the cosmos that we all live in. Um, I feel like I sound like I'm on mushrooms as I'm saying this, but I, I, I kind of believe it. Um, you know, and it's our job to sort of convey these messages uh, to the world. But it also means that I think part of being uh, not in dereliction of duty, right, if you are given this gift from the cosmos, if you're given this uh, vision of something that needs to be created, and maybe I have more thoughts about that, but it's your duty to make that clear and make sure that the people who see this understand it. Because, again, when I am, I mean, the, 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 the thing I felt it most clearly, I think, is when I was working on songs, right? I spent so much time on the lyrics because I, I felt like, I one, I had something to say, but I also felt like if I, you know, I have this idea, it feels important to me, it feels valuable to me. And if I don't do everything I can to make this as, as good as I possibly can, then it's, it felt like a waste of an idea. It would be a squandered opportunity, right? Uh, here I, I've been given this gift of inspiration, and if I don't do my best to make it the best that I can, I would be betraying the muse, man. I feel like the big Lebowski here. Dude, I'd be betraying the muse, man. And it sounds crazy, because I never would have said this when I was like 17, but now as like a 35-year-old man, you know, I've talked about this idea of really personifying the muse, really thinking of it, not that it is, but thinking of it as this spiritual being that acts as an intermediary between whatever this creative generating force in the cosmos is that, you know, links us to a greater truth or whatever you want to call it, our highest ideals, whatever we're aspiring to. It, it changes, frankly, I think, but you do feel like you're connected with this medium of sorts and you really owe it to that person, uh, that being, to not betray the things that they trust in you, the the glimpses of this you know, this wellspring of creativity that they sort of gift you with, right? And if you betray them, you know, it's like years ago in my music theory class, I don't know who this was related to, but we were talking about some composer who spoke of the muse as being fickle and jealous. And if you, uh, now I'm sort of framing it in my words, but if you betray the muse, it will leave you. You know, it's like when you read God of the Old Testament, you think, God, this guy's pretty sensitive, He needs a lot of attention. He's kind of an egomaniac. But in some ways, I think that's a, you know, what do you call it? Like an anthropomorphism, right? These human attributes that we have to attribute to what we experience this spiritual force as, right? And it feels fickle. It feels like if you don't give it the time and attention it deserves, if you don't give it the care that it seems to require, it goes away. And if we focus on worldly things, we feel out of touch, right? Like people talk about getting in touch with their spirituality, um, a practice, right? And it's not, well, maybe in some ways it's like riding a bike, but it does, it's not, you know, it's not something that we can sort of pick up and put down at will, right? It's something that needs to be catered, you know, it's, uh, it's almost like an engine that needs to be kept on a trickle charge or something. And if you don't run the engine, like cars have to be run, you know, or they fall into disrepair. I mean, I, you know, I had my license suspended for like two years and I was like 19 or something like that. 
And even though I drove on a suspended license for one year, my truck languished at my stepdad's house in the Arizona desert for a year. A bunch of fucking pack rats moved into it. And uh, when it came time to, to move the car eventually, it just wouldn't start. Had to get it towed to the shop and get worked on. And pack rats had like chewed the insulation under the hood and it was a fucking nightmare. But the point is, is that, you know, your relationship with your muse, whatever it is, it feels like something that has to be um, nurtured. <laughs> all right, so where am I going with all this nonsense? Um, uh, I guess it's just weird that I feel, uh, and maybe this actually invalidates everything I'm talking about, but it's weird to be hearing two people talk, Brett Easton Ellis and Chuck Palahniuk, who... The work of theirs that I've experienced, I haven't really enjoyed. And yet when I hear them speaking, I feel the spirit, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, I guess I'm trying to get back to this idea. That I, I feel like there's some interchange. Um, here, here's what I'm thinking. Maybe the things that we make, maybe our best efforts are part of a bigger scheme, you know? I'm trying to get into this idea of like, because I think, you know, if you, if you, if you don't try your hardest on something, it's a betrayal of an idea. I do attach this, I attach meaning to this idea and it's kind of an idea from Tolstoy. Uh, I think it's from a lot of sources, but I mean, I always sort of, I think back to Tolstoy and War and Peace, this idea that there's a great work being carried out in the world that we are, you know, we are, we are party to it. We are uh, witnesses of it. And, and some of us are mediums of it also. It's that whole interplay between yin and yang and, and good and evil and light and dark. But, you know, there's a great work being carried out in the cosmos. And, um, I mean, there really is this sense, like, you need to create the thing, whatever that is for you. It could be your novel. It could be your app. It could be... Um, uh, in act of kindness, it, it could be, you know, you just feel called to give someone a ride. Um, um, that's a whole nother story, man. I, 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 uh, I had this story where like I, I someone on a homeless woman outside my house at like four in the morning one time and ended up driving her like two and a half hours across the state to, to, to be with her family. But, um, you, you just feel like sometimes there's this great work being carried out in the world. And if you don't heed the call, not only will you live to regret it, but that you will be punished by seeing the work carried out by other people. You know, like God calls prophets and of course everyone rejects, but eventually they have to heed the call or else, you know, that call gets sent to somebody else. Um, but again, I go back to this quote of Tupac Shakur, which is like one of my favorite quotes of all time. And again, something that I just heard as a kid and... Um, you know, I enjoyed Tupac growing up. I had a bunch of his records. Um, but there, there's something about this quote, which I feel like I needed to hear, which is Tupac said, you know, I may not change the world, but I guarantee you I will spark the mind that will change the world. And uh, I think when you're an artist, I think, I mean, not only is it practically... Uh, not only is there a practical application of this, it is, it happens to me to be motivating, but I think it's part and parcel of this idea of like this spiritual calling or the spiritual purpose as an artist is that you need to create the thing because the world needs it. 
you know? And the world doesn't need it because they need another movie, right? There's plenty of people, you know, you can shit out content all the time now. Um, it's not, it may not fulfill a need in the world now, but another generation needs to witness this work to spark the future ideas, right? And so I, maybe it sounds insane. Maybe you think your boy's fucking nuts now, but the truth is I've read Fight Club and American Psycho, the novels, and I did not like them, but maybe they had to get written so that the movies could be made. Does that make sense? I'm thinking of the opera Wozzeck by Alban Berg, which is based on, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's a play by a German playwright who may have ended up killing themselves. But, you know, not a great work of literature, not something that we really know of. I mean, I, I think it's really only endured because of the opera. But Alban Berg, based on this, saw something in this play and created one of the masterpieces of 20th century opera one of the greatest operas in the canon. And so you do get this sense sometimes, like, that person was gifted a story and executed it, and I'm sure it's fine. I've never read the source material, honestly. But you do, because it inspired something much greater than it, you do feel, well, maybe that's why it was... Maybe that's why it was created. I mean, whoa, man, now, some, now a lot of stuff's coming to me. But it's like, we talked about this with George Floyd. You know, anyone who lived alongside George Floyd, and again, I know this gets weird. Um, you know, I'm not saying like it's a good thing that George Floyd died. I'm not saying, I'm not even a fatalist. I'm not saying these things happen for a reason. Or maybe that's what I'm saying, but I'm also denying it because I understand how it sounds. But what I'm saying is anyone who lived alongside George Floyd for most of his life, if they ask, you know, how do you think this person will impact the world? I don't know what people would have said, but I don't think it would have been this person's going to be uh, a cultural icon or um, uh, an event in this person's life will be a uh, one of the most, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think of, it's a redundancy, the momentous moments in history. You know, it's going to be a pivotal moment in the cultural zeitgeist, Right. But George Floyd dies, and all of a sudden, somebody who lived in obscurity their whole life is elevated to, to folk hero, to cultural icon. They're having their face painted all, all over walls and stuff, and, and uh, they live in infamy. And so you do have this sense that there is some great work being carried out, and none of us really know who we are. I'm, <laughs> I was about to recite a fucking Bob Marley quote at you. It's like, you know, he says, uh, never forget no youth, who you are and where you stand in the struggle. You know, none of us really know who we are and where we stand in the struggle. I mean, fuck, dude, isn't it funny? You know, we live in this time now where there's, there's this divide between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And it's like, it's so funny. And it's so, I mean, for people who are outside of it, it seems insane that the Christian right, the conservative Christian right, who fancy themselves religious, they are evil for the most part. And isn't it insane that most people who crack open the Bible and read it, they, see, they read about Jesus and they see themselves. Right? They read about Moses and the Jews enslaved in Egypt and they see themselves. Nobody ever picks up those books or those texts 
and sees or even thinks for a second, maybe I'm the Pharaoh. Maybe I'm the Pharisees. Maybe I'm a denier of Christ. Who denied Jesus Christ? Was it Peter? Denied him three times? I, I don't know him. Whatever the fuck it is. The point is that we, because we experience our lives like we're the heroes of our own stories, and who the fuck knows how we get into this stuff, folks, but we all, because we all see ourselves as the hero of our own stories, we read the Bible, we read these religious texts, and we think that we're the good guys. We never stop to think that we're the villain. And there's a thousand ideas that come into my mind, but I don't want to like, uh, I don't want to spoil them. But um, first of all, I think Tom Cruise is incredibly underrated as an actor. Um, but you should, if you haven't seen the movie Oblivion, it's a good one. I don't think a lot of us saw it, but I remember it being pretty damn good. And it sort of speaks to this. You know, a lot of us think that we're working for the good guys, but we, do, we, we don't know that we are. Right? Isn't it kind of a trope of like science fiction films that there's like some counter... Uh, I don't know. There's like villains, right? And, uh, you know, there's some twist in the third act that they're actually the good guys. I don't know. Um, whew, literally, I mean, I'm just dripping in sweat now. But, um, okay, so where do I go with this? Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just big upping artists, and, and I guess I believe that uh, <laughs> uh, artists, uh, the good ones anyway, uh, at their best are, are uh, I don't know, mediums for, for <laughs> spiritual content. I don't fucking know, man. I honestly don't know what I'm, I, don't, I honestly really don't know uh, how to tie this all together. It's one of those things that makes sense in my mind, and, and I, I feel it, and it's motivating for me, but when I try to talk about it, I, I, uh, I don't know how, well of a, how, how good of a job I do, but... Um, but, um, but yeah, it's just been something I've, I've been thinking about. And, uh, and again, just this idea of when I'm in the presence of art, you know, what is it that I'm responding to? Um, I guess I'm just saying it doesn't feel like a coincidence to me um, that when I'm reading anthropology and I'm reading Victor Turner or when I'm, you know, reading Chinese philosophy or the I Ching, when I look at the things that have been the most formative on me creatively without even knowing it. I mean, I really didn't even know it, but when I look back, it's like I see a lot of it is sort of seems to be hanging on a single thread, right? It, or, or at least, you know, even if the output looks very different, it's just interesting to hear Chuck Paul talk and feel like, oh, even though I would, ne if I wrote a novel, it would not be Fight Club or uh, it wouldn't even be a novel per se. You do feel like you're playing in the same sandbox, you know, I mean, I guess Jonathan Blow, the game developer, is a perfect example. I know nothing about developing games, and yet there's something about his games which speak to me on a very deep level. And it's not something I can articulate. I mean, I, I feel like as I've thought about it, I'm able to articulate it better. But it's not like they just impact me. I just feel like I'm in the presence of art. And then, of course, when I just f I hear Jonathan Blow talk, I go, oh, oh, oh a fucking course. This, I, this dude is hitting me with the fucking spirit. That's why. Um, anyway, I, I guess I've been thinking about this because I've just been, well, I, I, I guess I started by all this by saying I, I watch a lot of movies 
and uh, I watched a lot of good movies this week. I've rewatched some things. I've watched some new stuff. But it all started with Fargo. <laughs> Fargo. Uh, it, maybe it means that the co- there's this thing when you see things pop up on Netflix that just seem kind of strange. You think, why is that so prominently featured? Like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is something that I, I see sort of prominently placed on Netflix right now, and it just makes me think: Is Jack Nicholson coming out with a new movie or something? Because you see all these like uh, Charlie Kaufman films, all like. Weeks before I've been thinking of many things came out, you would see, oh, Being John Malkovich is on Netflix. Well, why the fuck is that on there? Um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And you think, oh, they're prepping people for the release of this thing. Um, so it makes you wonder if the Coen brothers have a new movie coming out on Netflix. But, um, uh, but I've, I've seen Fargo pop up. And, and Fargo, again, one of those movies um, from the late 90s, early 2000s that was just... I think it came out in like 97, 96, but one of the major films of that time period that inspired just a generation of filmmakers. Um, and when you watch that movie, you, you know you're in the presence of art, you know? It's just a, it's a beautiful film, and uh, especially as I watched it, I mean, I've probably seen it like two dozen times, right? Francis McDormand's character, there's something, actually... Th- there's kind of a drama that plays out in Fargo that actually plays out in a lot of the Coen Brothers movies. And I don't know that it's all of them, but from the time you watch Blood Simple, um, there is, I don't want to say it's a formula, but there are some themes that the Coen Brothers just seem to revisit over and over again. And it doesn't matter if it's a drama or a comedy. You get this, it's usually like somebody has a certain nature and in the beginning of the novel, they're faced with a choice where they can either stick with who they are or betray their nature, or maybe even just explore some... They're, they're given a glimpse into some area of life based on a choice that they've made that introduces them to a, a whole other ecosystem of living, an entire world that they, wasn't aware, that they were not aware existed, and now they have to kind of navigate it and sort of learn some lesson through it. You see this in Blood Simple. Um... But the one that it really sticks out for is sort of, well, let's just think through Fargo. I mean, you have William H. Macy's character who basically hires Steve Buscemi and the other guy who's incredible, I just can't think of his name, uh, to kidnap his wife so that her, uh, his rich father-in-law will pay a ransom that he can use to pay off some debt he seems to be living with. And Francis McDormand plays, uh, uh, it's set in... Uh, is it North Dakota? But everybody has these uh, sort of uh, uh, northern accents, yeah? And so it's comedic to hear people talk because it's sort of uh, it's a serious drama playing out and people are, are sort of speaking kind of silly. But, um, but she plays a law enforcement officer, a police officer, who's very good at her job and gets very serious. But in many ways, even though she deals with like, the underbelly of society, is very idealistic. And you have this William H. Macy character who's sort of descending into evil, right? Is sort of being dishonest, betraying maybe even their nature. I don't know. I don't know if that's the right way to word it. But you have this constance, right, with Frances McDormand where by the end of the film when she's apprehended the criminals after people have died and things have gone haywire and William H. Macy's whole plan has spun out of control and now people are dead and things just get worse and worse and worse... And at the end of the film, Frances McDormand has the surviving kidnapper in the back of her cop car, and she's just incredulous. She can't understand. You know, she says, look at you. 
People are dead, and, and all for what? For a little bit of money. Don't you know that there's more to life than just a little bit of money? And she has this line, she says, and, and all the, something like, and all the while, it's a beautiful day. I just don't understand it. And you just realize that Francis McDormand lives in a, in a very different world, and yet it's not, it's not naive. It just is. She's a good person who happens to live in a world where people aren't, and it just doesn't make sense to her. But she has to sort of navigate it. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like, uh, uh, I, I don't know, it's almost like uh, Virgil through hell. Or, sorry, uh, Dante through hell with Virgil, right? Or something like that. But, um, but uh, yeah, it's somebody exposed to an area of life that they would not see otherwise. I guess the better example for me is No Country for Old Men. And this is kind of like Big Lebowski to some extent, too, right? But in No Country for Old Men, uh, Llewellyn, I think is the character's name, right? He stumbles on some money. Uh, when he stumbles on a, a drug deal gone bad, he steals a satchel of money. And uh, he knows it's the wrong thing when he does it, and it sets his life on a completely different and irrevocably on another trajectory where he's exposed to an entire population of society that he would not have been exposed to otherwise. Um, And yeah, I don't know. Where am I going with all this? I think, I think, <laughs> not that it's a, uh, not that you're going to be, uh, uh, not that you're going to love this point, but I think it actually, as I was, I, I watched Fargo and I was just sort of, you know, like a lot of us do, I was just looking at the Coen brothers on uh, Wikipedia, probably wanting to see if um, some of their other movies were available. And actually, a few weeks ago, I watched Hail Caesar, which I had never seen. And I think a lot of people didn't think a lot of. Um, so it's sort of like burn after reading. Some like some Coen Brothers movies just seem like a celebrity clusterfuck. Like Quentin Tarantino's latter movies feel that way a little bit. They're just kind of a celebrity clusterfuck. And uh, you know, burn after reading felt that way. And I think a lot of people thought Hail, to, Hail Caesar was kind of like that. But I actually, I I finally watched Hail, uh, Hail Caesar. I thought it was pretty good. But um, but I f I saw that one of them is doing uh, an adaptation of Macbeth. And Macbeth is like my favorite Shakespeare play of all time. When I was, and we talked about it, and I'm not going to go into it too much, but you know, when I first heard the story of Macbeth, I felt it in my bones. It's the earliest memory I have, someone just telling me what Macbeth was about, and I felt it in my core. I said, oh, that is for me. You know, that is my shit right there. And I was like in first fucking grade, but I heard the story of Macbeth. And it rocked me. And I, you know, Macbeth has shadowed me my whole life. And all I'm saying is, I don't think it's a coincidence that there's something about the Coen brothers and their work that resonates deeply with me. Movies like Fargo, No Country for Old Men. And it just feels inevitable that one of the Coen brothers is doing Macbeth. I think it's exactly what they would do. Right? I mean, that is what Macbeth is. He encounters three witches who tell him that you're going to be the king, uh... Is it King of Scotland? <laughs> oh, where the fuck is it? I, it's a Scottish play, but... Uh, yeah, they say, first you're going to be the Thane, then you're going to be the king. And he says, well, how can that be? The king still lives. And they don't elaborate. But basically, Macbeth solves the problem for them. He says, oh, I guess I have to kill the king. And because he embarks on this... You know, he, he chooses to do this. It sets his life on an irrevocable path. Um, 
that he can't turn around and he's tortured by it. But he's, I don't know, he's chosen. Um, and in some ways he's gone against his nature. I mean, one thing that comes up in Macbeth over and over again is this idea, um, you know, uh, this idea, oh man, now we're fucking getting into it. So there's this phrase that comes up, sleep no more, right? They actually use that as the title of this installation in New York. Um, uh, that was like a living kind of loose adaptation of Macbeth that was done in New York City for a while. And actually, dude, the boy who does our music, actually, maybe I shouldn't say this. <laughs> maybe this is not public information, but, you know, disaster piece. Rich, who does our music, I was texting with him. He's actually, uh, he's working on some music for their next project. So, damn, dude, you're telling me there's no spirit in this podcast? You're saying there's not a spirit moving through my life? Dude, look at how many fucking dots we're connecting, folks. But, um... This idea that, you know, by this act, Macbeth has murdered sleep. Sleep no more, sleep no more, Macbeth hath murdered sleep. Um, the, the, there's a line, something like the topsy-turvy turned upside down. Something by this very act has sort of inverted nature, you know? There's this idea that this was, the witches present him with a choice, but Macbeth chooses this path. And by doing so, he's actually, he's actually gone against his nature, this is not who he was, but this is who he has to become. He has to sort of ride this wave out to the end. You know, um, I don't think with Macbeth you get the idea that he has this fatal flaw like other people do. Like, Richard III is just evil, right? He's just... But Macbeth is... Maybe it's, it, it, maybe it's ambition. But anyway, who the fuck cares, man? We're not doing a fucking analysis of Shakespeare. Um, I don't even know what the fuck we're doing anymore. We're talking about Coen Brothers. We're talking about Macbeth. Um... Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I don't fucking know, folks. Movies, Fargo, Macbeth. Um, oh, Sleep No More. So, oh, man. Last night, I watched Insomnia, the Christopher Nolan film, which is actually a remake of another movie, I believe, which I have also seen. I just can't remember what it is. But I remember seeing that movie years ago and thinking it sucked. And actually, you watch it, and it does not feel like a Christopher Nolan movie at all. I mean, not at all. It doesn't at all feel like a Christopher Nolan movie. If you watched it and asked me who the filmmaker was, I never would have fucking guessed, right? But the reason I went back to it is because uh, I think on a recent episode, we were talking about Inception. And, and Christopher Nolan, to me, is just one of those real-deal fucking filmmakers. And I was sort of laughing because I was saying, actually, now that I think about it, I like Memento an Inception, and I had forgotten about The Prestige, which I also think is a great movie, but it was like, I don't like the Batman movie, so that's three of his fucking movies I don't like. Interstellar was like, eh, which I actually rewatched. which, uh, yeah, again, the ideas are fucking spot on. The spirit is looming over Interstellar. It's just, you know, it's what makes, as great as Inception is, as powerful as it is, and, and I still think it's a, it's a categorically great movie, the ideas, and I think, I think the impulse is good. I think it's Christopher Nolan trying to be clear, you know? Uh, I think Christopher Nolan is aware that I'm dealing with some complicated topics that I need to make sure you understand so that you're on board for this film, so that I don't lose you. Like, I think Christopher Nolan is right in that if you want to err on the side of, uh, you want to err on the side of clarity, right? So a bit of what makes Inception hard to rewatch is the amount of exposition there is. So much of the dialogue is just explaining to the audience what's going on. 
and uh, Ariadne, the, uh, is it Jennifer Page? Oh, what the fuck's her name? I couldn't remember last time either. She acts as, like, the audience. Like, things get explained to her character, and, of course, she's us. She serves that sort of narrative function, right? So it gives characters an excuse to explain, explain things so that the audience can understand it. I also think she may operate on a deeper, deeper level in the movie, which, shit, I hadn't made this connection. Maybe that's the audience also. Whew! Anyway... What was I saying? Rewatch Interstellar. The ideas are there. It's a fucking deep movie, right? About time and choice. Um, really, it's, it's, it's powerful. But it's hard to watch because it's, the writing sort of is a little overambitious. It's a little ponderous. And it, it's, it just it sort of overreaches. It doesn't really earn what it's going for. You know what I'm saying? Um, but... Uh, so two things. I went back and I watched Insomnia, which is not great. It's fine. You know, Al Pacino's kind of walking through that movie. Uh, Robin Williams is strangely cast, right? It's just a weird movie. I don't know. I bet if we, if we heard from Christopher Nolan, he would have uh, ideas about what that movie is and why it turned out the way it did. But the fucking movie that I watched that fucking blew my mind was Dunkirk. I got off work at midnight on, like, Tuesday night, and I probably piddled around for, like, 20 minutes, kind of brushed my teeth, maybe took a shower. And I started watching Dunkirk, and I fucking watched the whole movie. That movie. I don't know why I thought it came out and didn't do well. Maybe it didn't do well. But I thought, like, it wasn't good. Like, I thought the consensus was that it was not a good movie. Dunkirk... I mean, Memento is something special. And I think The Prestige, there's something special about that film also. And I think Inception's phenomenal as well. You know, Memento, of those, I don't know, maybe even The Prestige even, they're, I don't know, they're just, they're just fucking great movies, right? And, and Inception's a phenomenal movie. But there's something about Dunkirk. And I think, in a way, it's, it's because it doesn't have to navigate the high concept, Right? It's just sort of a, it's, it's a war movie. But there's something about it that is so fucking perfect. And it does a few time things where it sort of cuts back and forth in time. But it's like, it doesn't, you know, it's not like other war movies where it gets really mired in having to, you know, explain the environment that the war is taking place in. Um, I think if you're kind of aware, you kind of, you know, you hear like, oh, it's the, uh, the English and the French and the Germans and you understand, oh, okay, I know what time period this is taking place in, but it, that is really all backdrop. The entire draw of the movie is these soldiers are on the beach, people are trying to leave and it's just one sort of harrowing situation to the next, you know, um, I mean, it feels a little bit like what Saving Private Ryan felt like for people who were alive when that movie came out. You just go, none of us had seen a movie like that before. It just made, as far as war films go, it just made you feel very different. And there's something about Dunkirk that does that also. And uh, the Tom Hardy character, he like you know, except for the very end, he's not outside of his plane the whole movie, which is fucking insane and awesome. But it's so tense and it's so hard to watch. And it, it just does such a beautiful job of, of building expectation and many times giving you what you think is going to happen, which is satisfying, but also going in directions that you never could have expected. And uh, even though there's some weird casting, like Harry Styles, and it's weird to see Kenneth Brenna in a movie, speaking of Shakespeare, but um, 
uh, it is weird to see Kenneth Branagh in a movie again, but, um, it's, it's fucking incredible. And so, uh, I, I don't know if, if you're looking for a good movie to watch, if you had to watch one thing, I would say watch Dunkirk. I mean, it's fucking incredible. Like it's one of those movies that you watch and once you've seen it, you, you kind of wish you could see it for the first time again, you know, cause it's, it's certainly a movie I'll rewatch, but I wish I could see it for the first time again. You know, and there's not a lot of movies that that give you that. You know, it's weird. It's weird for me to be sitting here gushing about Christopher Nolan and talking about him seriously because I think I would bet most people that would be would be kind of dismissive of Christopher Nolan. Like he he makes blockbuster films, and I bet like people in film school would just talk about how shit he is, right, or how hack he is, and how there's like real filmmakers out there. But for me. And I even see this with like my favorite bands, like the, the the most influential bands for me have been bands like Radiohead, have been even bands like Kings of Leon, which were fucking huge. Now, to be fair, your boy was fucking down with Kings of Leon before anyone was, but I was not surprised at all that they became famous, you know, um, for me, the mark of success is managing big ideas and with clarity and making them accessible to people. And I think in some ways, maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but I'll say it anyway. I think Christopher Nolan kind of fulfills the role of what I think an artist should be, which is they are of the moment. They handle big ideas. They communicate big ideas and they're not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? you know, they don't hit you over the head with them. It just is a part of the environment, right? And you could be as entertained by Dunkirk as you could be contemplative about it. You know, Inception's not a movie you have to think deeply about. You can just enjoy it. But if you want to look for deeper things, you'll find them, you know? And in a way, again, I go back to the game The Witness by Jonathan Blow. You can play the game and just enjoy it. But if you're paying attention... And if you're receptive, and a lot of it is just sort of based on who you are as a person, you might notice something that if you dare to pursue it, will open up an entire world for you. So anyway, I'm not pretending we've gotten to a satisfactory place, but that sounded pretty conclusive. And so maybe now would be a good time to end the podcast. So let's do that. Let's end for this week. And I feel like Mr. Rogers, but let's, we'll pick it up next week, neighbor. So if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take a minute, rate and review us. Give us five stars. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And think of one person in your life. I mean this. I say this all the time and most of you don't do it, but try it out. Think of one person in your life who you think would like the podcast. And send them your favorite episode. See what they think. Uh, In the meantime, we'll take a break here and we'll pick it up next week. So thank you for your time. Thank you for listening and ciao for now.